0: When I was on a high dose of psilocybin, I found out what it's like to lose touch with the momentum that propels us forward in the world. When the molecule was fully operating in my system, I was sat in a chair, essentially staring in front of me. I had a kind of crisis of self. What was I doing? What was anybody doing? Why were they doing it? Why does anybody do anything at all? They are driving their cars, they are going to work, they are talking to one another. They are pursuing one thing or another all the time. Naturally enough, I'm like that too under normal conditions. I can't just sit there doing nothing, not looking around at anything, not pursuing some line of reasoning or planning or imagination in my mind. In fact, I observe that it is quite difficult to calm the mind down, a practice which I engage in when I meditate. That's the key difficulty with meditation. The mind wanders off down the well-worn paths of rumination. But on psilocybin, for the first time, I came to question everything that I take for granted along these lines. At the time, this was about 20 years ago, I was a heavy smoker. I was outside on the back patio of my friend's place. Normally I would be smoking cigarette after cigarette. But once I was in the grips of psilocybin, I didn't smoke. I didn't understand why I would smoke or why I would do anything at all. What for? My normal frame of mind was completely lost. What impetus compels us to take action? To the extent that we are capable of doing or not doing, what decides in favor of doing? An input-output device like a computer requires no will or interest in the behaviors it manifests. Its behaviors follow as a necessary consequence of its inputs. Likewise, in a physical system, an effect seems to follow directly upon its cause. If consciousness were an epiphenomenon, as I have repeatedly insisted that it is not, then this inquiry would be moot. There would be, in our case, nothing more than the behaviors of the body and brain in direct consequence of stimuli. A conscious being, though, capable of willful action, must by some means be made to take preference in action. As a conscious animal, the preferences are baked into the organism by evolutionary processes. So the mind of the animal turns toward fulfilling its appetites. Of course, those appetites are determined by what kind of animal we are talking about. It seems a suitable place to start down this line of thinking by taking a look at studies in experimental animals, the noble rodents. In his book, Affective Neuroscience, Jock Panksepp describes what he calls the brain's seeking system. Others have referred to the same circuitry as the behavioral activation system, the behavioral facilitation system, or the foraging expectancy system. It is often called an appetitive motivational system. In any case, the neural circuit in question is composed of the medial forebrain bundle of the lateral hypothalamus, LH, and its ascending pathways. The ascending pathways utilize the neurotransmitter dopamine and form synapses in the frontal cortex. Panksepp writes, quote, When given the opportunity, animals fitted with electrodes in most LH locations voluntarily self-administer electricity into this system. In short, they self-stimulate. In the behaviorist lexicon, this system was called the brain reinforcement or reward system. Some of the more courageous investigators even dared to call it the pleasure system. All of these labels now seem to be misleading because they suggest a close relationship between arousal of this brain system and the consumatory phase of behavior. As already mentioned, the emotive tendencies aroused by this type of brain stimulation most clearly resemble the normal appetitive phase of behavior that precedes consumatory acts. As we will see, The pleasures and reinforcements of consummatory processes appear to be more closely linked to a reduction of arousal of this brain system. It makes sense that the many reward objects that naturally satiate appetitive behaviors, such as food, water, and sex, should be closely linked to internal processes that signal encounters with objects of clear biological relevance. Indeed, consummatory behavior causes a transient inhibition of appetitive arousal. As the animal encounters a need relevant reward object and shifts into the consumatory mode, the appetite of urge to move forward ceases temporarily. It is hypothesized that this rapid shift in the patterns of neural activity may establish the neural conditions that engage reinforcement processes in the brain. If you will humor me for a moment, I'd like to make some observations about male sexuality. I can't speak for every man, of course, but the system Panksepp talks about maps very well onto my experience with sex. The moments leading up to climax are, I would say, the most thrilling. But orgasm itself is the most pleasurable. These two states are distinct, I would suggest, because the first, that which precedes orgasm, is driven by the seeking system and mediated by dopamine. This first state is Panksepp's appetitive phase. The second, the experience of orgasm itself, must be driven at least in part by endogenous opioids and correspond to a sudden drop-off in dopamine. This is, in Panksepp's words, the consummatory phase. At the point of consumption, as it were, the sex drive is satiated, and I find that my normal frame of mind returns almost immediately. If I was thinking about consciousness prior to sex, as I often do, as I become involved in sex, my mind would shift to a new set of priorities, and I would likely forget what I had been thinking about before. Certainly this is the case in the period right before orgasm. Immediately upon completion, I might re-engage at once with the line of pondering consciousness that I had been thinking along before. Put simply, the dopamine level increases toward a climax, then becomes inhibited as the signal for reward and reinforcement comes on. Let's say you are asked which is the best part of some fun activity. Sex will do, for example, but other sources of excitement can be considered. How about a heavy metal concert? How about that moment early in the show when the lights are out before Slayer comes on stage? You are surrounded by enthusiastic fans in the pit. Then you vaguely see the shadowy figures of the band members advance into view. The crowd cheers. A few tentative beats on the drums, then boom, the lights go crazy. We see the band in all their glory standing proudly before a giant inverted cross and a favorite riff explodes through the amplifiers. That moment is hard to beat. It's the place where the peaking dopamine of anticipation mixes with the euphoric blast of rewarding endorphins. Or a roller coaster, the most exciting moment occurs when the click-click-click of upward movement has maximized the anticipation right at the top of the big hill, just as the coaster drops over the edge. Until a year ago, I was addicted to cigarettes. So naturally, like any other appetite, I was driven to light up and smoke. But I observed something. When I was halfway through a cigarette, I would be imagining lighting up another one when this one was through. It wasn't for want of nicotine. The nicotine craving was satiated, but I wanted the dopamine hit that I get from lighting one up and taking that first drag. That's the best part. Which is better, the object of desire or its gainful pursuit? It's the gainful pursuit, but the whole thing hinges on the word gainful. When I play a strategy board game with a friend, my favorite condition is when I am winning. Note, that isn't the state of having won, it's the state of being on my way toward winning. Do you see the pattern emerging from these examples? I suspect there is a lesson in this. Maybe it even accounts for some of the feeling of nostalgia. At the risk of being vulgar and off-putting, I'm going to bring up one more point about male sexuality. There is something which some men do which is known as edging. This is the practice of getting very close to sexual climax, then backing off for a time and doing it again repeatedly. This is a way of gaming the dopamine system, of riding that wave of excitement and anticipation, but it is not easy to do. The momentum of building desire urges you forward, not backward. It's like the marshmallow test for men. If you wait, you get a bigger payoff. But can you wait? Obviously, the imperative of biology is to get to ejaculation, or to kill the boar with your spear, or to drink water when you are thirsty, and so on. But why do you think people like to sport fish? You know, the kind of fishing where you reel it in, take a look at your prize, and throw it back? There again, it would seem that the thrill is in the catch, not in the consumption. A man engaged in edging is sport fishing. If he were hungry enough, he wouldn't be throwing that fish back in the water. What about the reward itself, the object of our desire, or the satiation of some appetite? I have argued that the best part is in the seeking, but this is only true in retrospect and only if the desired object was acquired. For example, suppose some emergent situation were to stop you from finishing a sexual act at the inopportune time of maximal arousal, let's say the peak slope of dopamine activation, that moment that I described as being the most thrilling. This emergent situation would be frustrating, and you would hardly describe the sex you just had as great because you got to enjoy the best part. You see what I mean? I'll give you another example. I described the opening of a Slayer concert. The band members come onto the stage as shadowy figures in the darkness. The crowd roars. A few strikes of the drums. Then boom, the lights come up in a splendor of strobes and smoke. The riff kicks in. Now suppose the speaker's cut out. The lights go dim and the show is over. Your experience is ruined. That awesome beginning to the show is only your best part in light of what follows. I believe this is because of the reinforcement that occurs after the object of desire is achieved. And it is probably mediated by endorphins. The interesting thing is that this reasoning implies that our experiences take on a retrospective valence. The dopamine-driven seeking system is responsible for our sense of excitement, curiosity, and anticipation. Panksepp writes, quote, Before summarizing additional intriguing facts concerning the seeking system, let us briefly consider how its activation modifies subjective experience. This is especially important since many investigators who discuss human emotions have had difficulty agreeing what emotional state this system is supposed to mediate. I would suggest intense interest, engaged curiosity, and eager anticipation are the types of feelings that reflect arousal of this system in humans. Obviously, in humans, such a neural system has a vast reservoir of cortical potentials to interact with, yielding a menagerie of specific cognitive changes. However, at a more basic level of analysis, two issues concerning the nature of such psychobehavioral states are pertinent. The first, and more confusing issue, is whether we should even consider appetitive engagement or interest types of mental states to be an emotion. Although the affective expression of interest is quite clear and evident in young infants, typically there is no intense outward expression of this state in adults. Of course, we should remember how socially important it is for humans to give the impression of being cool and collected on the outside, even though they may be jumping up and down with childish excitement in their minds. The cultivated appearance of detachment may in fact be a learned human convention used to promote a sense of power, control, and even useful deception in the practice of everyday social politics. If you want to succeed, it is often best to keep a poker face rather than reveal the intense excitement interest you have. Second, curiosity and interest seem to be relatively stable personality traits as opposed to passing emotional states. In fact, contrary to most other emotional responses, the seeking system is commonly tonically engaged rather than phasically active." Activation of the seeking system is highly enjoyable. Keep in mind that stimulant drugs like cocaine and methamphetamines work on this system, but there is plenty of evidence that heightened levels of dopamine activity lead to psychosis, Moreover, antipsychotic drugs inhibit this dopamine system, causing sluggishness and even depression. Drugs like heroin and morphine are a different story. These exogenous opioids produce a sense of pleasure, not unlike the pleasure that occurs with orgasm. They do not produce excitement in the way that cocaine and meth do. Animals with implanted electrodes will self stimulate the dopaminergic neurons in the seeking system. But as you can imagine, they will also self-stimulate the opioid pleasure system, and they they will do so until they die. There is a bleak lesson in that, too. Imagine consciousness in the absence of a seeking system. Remember, this is the means by which objects of interest, novelty, and appetite gain their positive valence. I want to go back now to a passage from my episode last year on evolution. I said the following. How could epiphenomenal subjective experiences gain purchase on the objective behaviors of the organism, and thereby cease to be epiphenomenal? Let's consider how an ancestral conscious animal might have arose with this capacity. If for the sake of illustration, the animal had only a single sufficiently integrated neural modality to work with, it might experience a single phenomenal feature, say brightness. Subtle changes in the underlying neuronal activities which gave rise to it might affect the degree of brightness. The emergent consciousness would have no means of changing its own experience and no intrinsic preference for a given brightness over any other, and it would not necessarily have the temporal continuity to observe the dynamics occurring in its subjective brightness. So let's give the conscious system a sense of continuity, a basic working memory that provides it with a sense that the brightness is either going down, going up, or staying the same. Further. Suppose a neuronal arrangement could, by chance, produce a causal structure wherein motor functions could be influenced, directly or indirectly, by the degree of brightness experienced from the point of view of the system, not only by the neural systems from which the brightness emerges. Then, and only then, consciousness would be functional. Crucially, suppose that neuronal activities could evolve to produce a sense of value in the experience of brightness, a preference. A subjective point of view having a sense of continuity, a preference for certain qualia, and the capability to tinker with those qualia could pursue a higher degree of pleasant brightness or a lower degree of unpleasant brightness, as the case may be. At minimum, this exemplary consciousness would be composed of nothing more than a degree of brightness, a preference for more, less, or the same degree of brightness, a capacity to alter that degree, and an implicit understanding of which way the degree of brightness is changing at a given moment. The qualitative preferences which best fit the survival and productivity of the organism would be selected by nature over the preferences of its competitors. Note that it would not matter what kind of neural systems had given rise to brightness, whether visual or olfactory or auditory or anything else, nor would it matter what the consciously controlled behaviors were actually doing in the material world. They could be moving arms or tentacles or vocal cords or cilia. They could be driving frontal network behaviors related to attention or learning. The only thing that would matter is whether the consciously mediated activities ultimately resulted in better outcomes for the organism. Okay, this analysis was to demonstrate the necessary developments to evolve a functional consciousness, one which makes a difference for the organism producing it. Notice that the whole thing hinges on the idea of preference. This is the emergence of value. We implicitly assume that a conscious creature would take action just for the hell of it. I don't think so. As conscious human beings, we are always on the move, with our eyes, our hands, even our thoughts. We don't dwell on one thing for long. There is a constant drive to keep moving along. Consider the feeling of being in a doctor's office. The nurse brings you into the room where you take a seat and wait for the doctor to come in. This might take several minutes. You look around. You read the stupid poster on the wall that shows the digestive tract, or lists the signs of menopause or whatever. You look over the bottles of cotton swabs and stuff. You count the ceiling tiles. You know what I mean? But all of this is driven by an appetite for novelty and amusement. Incidentally, both are rare in a doctor's office. Nevertheless, we try, don't we? Why not just fix our eyes upon the light switch for 20 minutes? Because we have evolved a seeking system. We aren't much different than a laboratory rodent. Drop us into a chamber for a while, and we will explore it. Panksup writes, quote, The preceding results are highly consistent with the idea that a unitary neuropsychological process is evoked by LH stimulation. Even though animals are prone to exhibit many distinct consumatory behaviors when this system is activated, depending on their personality tendencies and bodily needs, there is one behavior that is exhibited by all. All animals move forward in an energetic search pattern, sniffing vigorously and investigating, mouthing and manipulating prominent objects in the environment. Every rat stimulated in the LH exhibits this behavior pattern, even though they go in many different consumatory directions if provided a variety of interesting objects with which to interact. Indeed, one might expect that with the right choice of an environment, all animals might, in fact, exhibit a single type of stimulus-bound appetitive behavior. And that is precisely what happens. Above all, Panksepp makes clear that the seeking system causes us to move forward actively in the world. There is nothing objectively preferable in food or sex or anything else as compared to poking yourself in the eye with a pencil. As conscious human beings, we we certainly have preferences, but the objects of our desire were not determined by us. They are the legacy of natural selection. Bertrand Russell recognized this a hundred years ago in his lectures on instinct and desire. I'll share some of that with you now. Russell said, quote, The hungry animal goes on making movements until it gets food. It seems natural, therefore, to suppose that the idea of food is present throughout the process, and that the thought of the end to be achieved sets the whole process in motion. Such a view, however, is obviously untenable in many cases, especially where instinct is concerned. Take for example reproduction and the rearing of the young. Birds mate, build a nest, lay eggs in it, sit on the eggs, feed the young birds, and care for them until they are fully grown. It is totally impossible to suppose that this series of actions, which constitutes one behavior cycle, is inspired by any provision of the end, at any rate the first time it is performed. We must suppose that the stimulus to the performance of each act is an impulsion from behind, not an attraction from the future. The bird does what it does at each stage because it has an impulse to that particular action. Not because it perceives that the whole cycle of actions will contribute to the preservation of the species. The same considerations apply to other instincts. Unquote. When this lecture was given, there was no knowledge of action potentials or neurotransmitters acting at synapses, let alone the dopamine driven seeking system. Russell's intuition, which is well characterized in the passage I just shared, is that the behavior is driven from behind. He elaborates further here. Russell says, quote, The primitive non-cognitive element in desire seems to be a push, not a pull, an impulsion away from the actual rather than an attraction towards the ideal. Certain sensations and other mental occurrences have a property which we call discomfort. These cause such bodily movements as are likely to lead to their cessation. When the discomfort ceases, or even when it appreciably diminishes, we have sensations possessing a property which we call pleasure. Pleasurable sensations either stimulate no action at all, or at most, stimulate such action as is likely to prolong them." Bertrand Russell adds some valuable contributions to our discussion. He points out that we do not necessarily understand the purposes of our actions. The example of the mating and nesting birds is a good illustration. We humans are not much different. Sexual arousal is not a feeling of wanting to have a child. The object of desire is much closer to home. Nevertheless, it seems to me, and the evidence supports, that we are not driven to sexual congress by the aspiration to end a sense of discomfort. We are driven forward by an appetitive feeling. We are motivated to attain our object, but as Russell observes, it is not the ultimate object, the continuation of our genes. In my opinion, he simplifies the case too far. With the hindsight of a century of advancements in experimental psychology and neuroscience, we know about the seeking system and how it compels movement forward, towards an object of desire or interest. Russell adds to our discussion, though, that we are also driven from behind, as it were, to acquire the discontinuation of uncomfortable sensations. In fact, we are subject to both pull toward our desires and push away from what we do not desire. On psilocybin, I felt neither push nor pull. That was a profound demonstration of how tenuous our connection to value and motivation are. I was conscious. Of that there is no doubt. In fact, I was completely and lucidly awake. Consciousness might take on many forms. I am, that is certain, but what I am and what I desire is subject to total redefinition. Maybe Thomas Nagel was right when he wondered what it would be like to be a bat. But I'll go a step further. Dr. Nagel, what is it like to be a bat on psilocybin?